Welcome to Grafted, Jewish Roots of Christianity. I'm your host, Stephanie Pavlantos. My guest today is Ted Wright. Ted currently serves as the founder and executive director of EpicArchaeology.com. He is a BA in Anthropology and Archaeology from Cobb Institute of Archaeology at Mississippi State University. He also has an MA degree in Christian Apologetics. He has served as a graduate research assistant to Dr. Norman Geisler, and he has been a speaker on Christian Apologetics as well as Bible Archaeology across North America and International. So you've been on quite a few things. You've been involved in some actual digs. And you have been a teacher, and I think you told me that you were a, a professor, and I missed that, but you were a professor as well in a seminary. Yes, uh, thank you, Steffi, for having me on. Um, yes, I taught uh, seminary for about 13 or 14 years, um, Old Testament survey, uh, Christian apologetics, biblical archaeology. I've also served as a um, an archaeological field excavator. I've, I've actually uh, participated in uh, archaeological surveys. And digs as a as a square supervisor, and also as a laboratory assistant uh, processing artifacts. Uh, and I'm currently also involved in a, an archaeological project in Turkey uh, currently. Um, so I have field experience, and I'm a professional associate with uh, Associates for Biblical Research. Uh, that's based out of Pennsylvania. Uh, we're sort of a loose consortium of uh, evangelical and uh, conservative archaeologists who actually think there's historical reliability in the text. And uh, I'm a professional associate with them, and I've been on their program as well. They have a, a program on television uh, uh, there in Pennsylvania that's uh, syndicated nationally. I think you can watch it on YouTube. It's called Digging for Truth, and I've been on several episodes of that. Hmm. Uh, but my passion is biblical archaeology and really to help people connect the dots between the message in the scripture and the historical and archaeological uh, reliability of the text that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. Wow. Yes, you do have an impressive bio, and that's pretty cool. And I know that when we talked before, um, you even you've mentioned different countries you've been in, and Egypt was one of them. And of course, I think if I remember correctly, Israel. Actually, I have not been to Egypt. That's one place I would. That's oh. on the bucket list. Yeah, <laughs> I would love to go there. Israel, yes, Israel and Turkey and uh, Eastern Turkey and Israel in the West Bank. Yes. Okay. Okay, that's pretty cool. And. I've had Deborah Bird on here, who is the president of Basora. And actually, that's how Ted and I met um, through Debbie. She had put out a thing like, hey, Stephanie's doing a podcast. Anybody want to take part in it? And um, she was very helpful in that way. And so we had the opportunity to uh, talk on the phone beforehand. But then you also are going to be teaching a class for um, Basora Institute. And you want to tell us a little bit about Absolutely. that? Absolutely, we're uh, we're doing part two um, of uh, of a series that we started last year on biblical archaeology, and um, and really, you don't really uh, it's not necessary that you have taken the first to take the first class to do the second class because we're going to start we're going to review a lot of the material that we we covered last time, but we're going to pick up uh, about the time of the um, but about the time of the monarchy with David and Solomon. And then we're going to go through the New Testament, and um, there are some really exciting things to share from an archaeological standpoint with that. But we're going to start with that with the Basora Institute uh, 
beginning in the month of February uh, on Thursday nights and uh, be an online course, um, sort of a uh, seminary level type course on biblical archaeology. Mm. It's just an exciting time to be alive today uh, in, as a Christian uh, to see some of these amazing uh, artifacts and discoveries that are being made. Uh, just seems like every year new things are coming to light uh, that help us to understand the biblical world. So what are some of your most exciting finds or digs that really stand out? Well, to for you? me, uh, see, here's, here's where, here's where the professor hat comes on. Uh, a lot of, a lot of folks think a lot of people who, you know, uh, consider archaeology is it, really fun. It's really cool. But, um, when you get into academic archaeology, a lot of the discoveries, are not necessarily the the Ark of the Covenant, you know, type of thing. Uh, it's really right. the mundane that sort of builds the big picture. So pottery and uh, other artifacts like a scarab from from ancient Egypt or something like that helps us to uh, understand the time frame of when an event happened. And I'll say that one of the, one of my favorite things is we were uh, in the West Bank at a place called Kerbet El Makater in Israel in 2014, and I was helping uh, to excavate. Along the late Bronze Age Canaanite wall of the city of the ancient site of Ai, um, if you remember in the book of Joshua, when it, when Joshua and the Israelites crossed over the River Jordan, of course they marched around the walls of Jericho, as we read in the text, and and the walls of Jericho mm-hmm. fell down. But the second site that they came to, according to the Old Testament, is the site of Ai. And for many years, uh, archaeologists were looking for the site of I, and there was some debate among archaeologists as to exactly where it was. They sort of knew a general proximity of where the site was located, and there were there were about three or four candidates for the site of I, one that stood out um, years ago that many people looked at. In fact, it was excavated by um, Livingston, I think it was. Um, it was a site of called Etel. Uh, and it's near the site, the modern-day city of Ramallah in the West Bank. And there are several other possible locations, Kerbet Nissa, and then the site that really came to the surface about 20 years or so ago, maybe maybe it's not quite 20 years ago, was a site in the same general vicinity called Kerbet el Makater. That's the Arabic name. Uh, but uh, when you look at the biblical um, – when you look at all the biblical criteria, when you read carefully the text of the Old Testament um, – there are about 12 or 13 criteria when you look at the geography. The Bible gives you clues as to where to look when you carefully read the text and just really ask the question, what does the text say? It will actually give you exactly where to look. And so uh, Dr. Bryant Wood, uh, who is, uh, was the chief excavator at the time uh, and the dig director um, of, of ABR, um, he took uh, one of his colleagues, Dr. Gar- well, Gary Byer, and him, they went and they searched. They did a survey, and uh, they found every single criteria. When you look at the text, matches geographically the site of Kerbet El Makater. And then, uh, so they started excavation there. I think it was 2014, 2015 timeframe. And uh, the excavation just stopped a couple of years ago. And I had the honor to, to be uh, on the team in 2014 along the late Bronze Age Canaanite Wall. And um, when you read in the text that. Uh, when you read carefully that that text, that account of Joshua and his, you know, the account of the destruction of Ai, um, it says that Joshua essentially split his forces in half. He had half his army in the valley below the city, and he had half his force. In fact, he was actually poised on a mountain, sort of on a hill, right outside the front gate of Ai, pointing north, and 
And this site is a Canaanite, late Bronze Age Canaanite uh, walled fortification where the gate points north, where there's a hill due north. There's a valley to the south, um, and all the all the geography fits exactly. And sure enough, in the late Bronze Age, the site was destroyed and burned exactly as the Bible states. And, uh, and so we were digging along the wall there, and we found uh, bronze arrowheads and sling stones and burned pottery. So I actually have some burned pottery from the side of I, which is a direct correlation between what the what the what the text says in the Bible and what what we actually find in the ground. So so I would say that was one of my most exciting uh, things to to be a part of, to actually to be a part of and you know, to see biblical history literally come to life. And to actually go to the site. Right. No, I get that. I get that totally. Because um, I I had another guest on, Eva Marie Everson, and she had, was visiting Israel. And she said they actually went to a place. And honestly, I can't remember exactly where it was. But she goes, as they dug down, they could find scorched walls and scorched mm-hmm. areas. And they, and they actually took them down and said touch it and and you know they had it all over their fingers and and he said this is the bible account of this is the very place where this in the bible happened and and here we have evidence of that and and and, you know she was like super excited you know she was like this is so cool and the same thing it was just like the bible came alive from that day it's it's awesome the big question uh that that scholars have today and the big debate among among uh you know, more archaeologists that that have more of a faith basis uh, versus ones that don't is the dating of these of these particular sites. Um, years ago, there was an, a book written by Dr. Bill Deaver, uh, who's now retired from the University of Arizona. The name of his book was "When Did the Biblical Writers What Did the Biblical Writers Know and When Did They Know It," which is a really mm-hmm. uh, it's a great title for a book, but it's also a great question, and it's the, really the center of the debate on. The reliability of biblical archaeology to give us an accurate accounting of what we read in the text. A lot of secular archaeologists in uh, universities they absolutely balk at that uh, at that notion that that, that archaeology can actually provide reliability. They have a very very skeptical view of the text and a very anti supernaturalistic bias. Uh, that wasn't the case, you know, forty fifty years ago. Uh, really the high watermark in, in, in archaeology in America was with the American archaeologist William F. Albright at Johns Hopkins University. And it sort of took a nosedive after the 1950s, after he died. After the, it's called the Albright-Wright method, and that's not referring to me. It's referring to George Ernest Wright, who was a colleague of his. And uh, and it's become more and more secular as time has, has moved forward. Although I will say there's been a renaissance in uh, in biblical archaeology in the past uh, 20 years or so, and we have seen some just remarkable discoveries. In fact, I would say a lot of the discoveries in the past few years have been made by people not really setting out to prove the Bible one way or the other, but they're just they're just doing archaeology and they're discovering things that actually uh, affirm the text. But of course, you're always going to have the the naysayers, the ones who uh, you know urge uh, that this is not true. But uh, but I think that's the you know if confidently if as we as a as a an article of faith believe that the text is inerrant you know Second Timothy three sixteen all scriptures is inspired by God then it's going to be reliable and we don't have to worry about um, you know moving ahead in the future it's just I think just time will time will show that the Bible is reliable and it has and it can, will continue to do so I think. Mm. 
Right. I agree because I, I think that when things don't make sense, it's our lack of understanding, not because the Bible is confusing or the Bible has mistakes or, you know, it's, it's more about what we understand. And, and even part of what I, I teach a lot is we, we want to look at scriptures through an American Western mm-hmm. eye instead of who the Bible was written by and taught to, which were Middle Eastern men and women. And, um, and unless we put ourselves in their shoes and look at the Bible through their eyes, then we're going to, things aren't going to make sense and things are going to be a little skewed to us. And I think that's, um, an important part of what I'm doing on this podcast. I want people to start understanding scripture through the Jewishness of Jesus and the Bible as a Jewish text. Mm -hmm. Um, it's the word of God, but he taught and spoke to Middle Eastern people yeah. who had a whole different system of living and relating to each other than we do. Exactly. So I think it's just, I think it's fascinating it is. actually. And so, so that's where, um, I get a little nerdy. Somebody <laughs> was actually talking to me and, and he said, Stephanie goes, I, I've listened to your podcast and he goes, um, you get excited about like, <laughs> some things and i'm just like why is she really excited about that and so so that's kind of where um i come from because it's it's something that just will stand out to me in scripture like even where moses is concerned i remember when in the story of the exodus when he first went to pharaoh god gave him three signs and i've been listening to a podcast by uh rabbi david foreman and he is orthodox, but he is going through Genesis mm-hmm. and it's fascinating the things he brings out that, that we don't, we don't read, we don't get taught. And, and just even how, why he threw down his mm-hmm. staff, it turned into a snake and then the magicians threw theirs down, turned into a snake. Well, that's right. What happened is God's snake ate their snakes, you know, ate the Egyptian snakes and, and it's more about, what they worshiped they worshiped mm-hmm. the snake and 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 i mean and to me i internalize that here is a perfect picture of spiritual warfare because god overcame this idol this god of the egyptians exactly and that's just the tip of the iceberg back at that and that whole narrative it's just the it's uh what we call polemical theology throughout the old testament especially the torah and especially in the in the exodus account not only was the snake worshipped, it was one of their tutelary gods. There were only two gods. In fact, if you look at a, the crown of a pharaoh like King Tut, most people have seen the crown of King Tut. There's a snake and a vulture. Those actually represent the two gods of the two major geographical gods of Egypt. The snake is in the Nile Delta. That's Nekbet, and which was sacred to the Egyptians, and and the vulture was uh excuse me wajit was the snake nekbet was the vulture mm-hmm. and it represented upper and lower egypt uh the uh, lower part of egypt or the southern part of egypt which is it's kind of confusing because the nile flows from the south to the north but the egyptians called um the southern part of their country dashre which means the red land and the northern part they call kemet it's it's a uh, well it's actually KMT in the in the in the hieroglyphics but it, sometimes you you may hear pronounced Kemet but it means the black land it, it's referring to the black rich mm. alluvial soil of the, of the Nile Delta 
and it represented the snake represented the very emblem of Pharaoh himself. So you essentially have Moses and Aaron going before Pharaoh and throwing down the very emblem of their national identity and the royalty of the Pharaoh himself. It was sort of just a really mm-hmm. slam. And then all of the plagues, in fact, uh, corresponded to an Egyptian god or gods. And then finally, you've got the death of the firstborn, which was a, a confrontation mm-hmm. of the divinity of Pharaoh himself. Um, so there's, this is just at the beginning of it. In fact, you find it in the Exodus and you find it all throughout the Old Testament, this polemical uh, approach in which the Hebrew writers, they're not – one of the things that liberal scholars say is that you know, the Hebrew writers are borrowing or stealing ideas from these other pagan nations like the Egyptians or the Assyrians or whatever. But what I think they're doing, and I agree with Dr. John Currid who wrote a really great book on this called Against the Gods. It's a really excellent book. It's a little thin book, but it's very powerful and and very, very, um, I think, appropriate to think about these issues. John Currid, C-U-R-R-I-D. But what Currid says and what others say about this polemical angle is that um, is that not that the biblical writers are um, they are decidedly monotheistic in their approach. In other words, they're not trying to steal ideas from the pagan nations. They know what they're saying. They're saying that essentially, to paraphrase, that what they're saying is that you say that your gods have the power, but it's really Yahweh who has the real power, uh, and they're almost like a taunt. And the, the penultimate example of this in the Old Testament, one of the greatest examples, is when uh, Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And, of course, Baal is a fertility god, and his female consort, Asherah, is also a fertility goddess. She's the Canaanite uh, version of Baal, and, uh, and they are supposed to be the ones who bring the thunder and lightning, which will bring the fertile rains, which will bring the crops – and uh, they call out to their gods. Of course, the Canaanite gods do, and he can't mm-hmm. answer. He doesn't – make Elijah taunts them. And then, of course, then Yahweh – then Elijah steps forward and prays, and Yahweh brings the fire. He said, let the true God will answer by fire. And um, so this polemical angle is found all throughout the Old Testament. You really see it with Moses and his confrontation of Pharaoh – uh, with the with the serpent, and another, if I can uh, add one more thing to that, this is really cool. In Numbers twenty one, uh, when interestingly, if the snake, and since this, or rather, since the snake represents Egypt itself, represents Kemet, which is where the Israelites were located. They were there in bondage for you know. Well, they started out as a provision, God bringing them in because of a famine uh, through Joseph and Jacob. Of course, Joseph goes into th- th- there, but they're there and they stay there for nearly four over 430 years or so. Egypt represents this. The serpent is literally is like the American eagle. Like if you look at the eagle, it represents or ancient Rome would be the eagle. Well, Egypt was the snake, the serpent. And um, so in Numbers 21, uh, as they're uh, going in the wilderness, the Israelites begin to complain and cry out to God and Moses, you know, you brought us out here to die. And they they cried to go back to Egypt. They wanted Egypt. So what does God do? He sends them Egypt in the form of the serpent. And the serpent, they're they're crying out to go back to slavery and death. So God sends them what they asked for in the servant, in the serpents. And they they're of course you're dying because of the serpents. And then and one of the most bizarre things in the Old Testament, God commands Moses to make a bronze serpent and place it on a staff. And those who look to the serpent will live. 
And this is a picture of the crucifixion, literally a, a pre and, you know, uh, Old Testament picture of the crucifixion. And then fast forward the scriptures to John, where Jesus in John three is talking to Nicodemus and he's talking about how can a man be saved? And he and Jesus and, and sort of a remarkable, uh, surprise say, you are the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man shall be lifted up that those who looked at him shall live. So it's a very powerful imagery here of, of Christ. And then you think about that picture. If Egypt is represented by the serpent and then you trace that serpent imagery all the way back to the book of Genesis, the serpent is also uh, how Satan appears before Adam, before Eve, of course, when he tempts her. He's literally the embodiment of evil. And of course, the, uh, Paul says that Christ, he who was made, who, who knew no sin became sin for us. So if, if you think about this imagery in the Old Testament, Jesus literally becomes a serpent for us. He becomes the very symbol of evil on the cross. And then God, in an act of miraculous you know, um, what I would call what actually J.R. Tolkien, the writer, he coined this term called eucatastrophe, which means that God can turn the worst thing and make it into a good thing. And that's what he does with the crucifixion, that Jesus becomes sin for us and that we're saved through his death. And uh, and then he's, he rises again on the third day. But the imagery there is all in the Old Testament. We wouldn't understand this if we didn't mm-hmm. understand Egyptian culture and Egyptian religion. And uh, and the hieroglyphics and knowledge of ancient Egypt helps us to understand these things. It is. It's very, very interesting. You're right. I um I read a devotional that this um he actually this man he, his pen name is Kaimbentora, and he actually um, was a Moody Bible uh, Institute teacher, a professor of Hebrew and Aramaic. And he talked about that very thing in one of his devotionals. Um, it's funny because it's not your normal devotional, <laughs> but he, uh, he talked, um, that about that very thing in numbers 21. And he, he added, now I don't know, you know, everybody has a different opinion and, and there's sometimes that uh, things don't always line up with what other people say. So I'm just saying that as a disclaimer. This is just what I read. But he talked about it being um, their god Apophis, and that um, and when they bowed down to Apophis, and he was a snake like with a human head, and they bowed down and they couldn't look at him. And if they did look up, they were blinded or they were sent in darkness mm-hmm. for the rest of their life. And so he he described it as what did God do? Just like what you said, He brought Egypt to them, mm-hmm. and then he um, he had. Moses put that serpent up on um, a pole and, and he said, you denounce this God, you, you've left Egypt. Now you have to make a decision. Are you going to continue to worship the gods of Egypt? Or are you going to worship me? And by doing that, you have to look up, you have to look up. And if mm-hmm. you look up, you, you'll mm-hmm. have light. And and it's the same thing uh, looking up, you know, we're always told to look up and yes. see your salvation, look up and see and so instead of bowing down, the ones who bow down were still worshiping that Egyptian God. But the ones who looked up were going against that and looking up at the God of the universe. Absolutely. And so it's just such a cool. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I find that fascinating to um, 
to put all that together that there was there was so many I think in scripture there's so many spiritual lessons. Um, we see them complaining. We see, you know, almost like God, why are you starving these people? Why are you, why are you letting them die of, you know, thirst and whatnot? But it, there were different tests. There were different things to, and I heard one writer, um, one author say he took them out of Egypt, but he had to get Egypt out of them. That's right. That's right. And it took forever. Like they were thoroughly, thoroughly paganized almost to the, to where Egypt was so deeply ingrained in their thinking. I think that a lot of the commandments actually have to do with the, God, Yahweh, telling them, you, you've been worshiping these gods this way, but th- I don't I do not do this. This is not me. You shall have no other gods. You know, and I think I think even taking his name in vain has an Egyptian connotation. The whole idea you know, about the third commandment, not to take the misuse of the name of the Lord. I think that one of the things that we see in Egypt, that they had a, a household gods – such as Apophis and others, um, Bess is another one that they had, and they had a sacred, like sort of an incantation where they could say the magical name of the god, and the god had to do whatever they said. And God was basically mm-hmm. saying, "Listen, I'm I, you don't do I'm not I don't do play that game. You know, you can't just say my name and I do whatever you wish." Because if you think about it, when Moses in Exodus wow. three, he 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 tells he asked God in the burning. He said, "When I go back to the Israelites, what do I tell them your name is?" Has always wondered how in the world could they violate that commandment if they didn't hardly even know his name. I mean, a few of them sure knew or had memories of maybe Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but but how could they have violated the third commandment? I think it has to do with uh, them putting God on the same level as these Egyptian gods. And I think that that's a very powerful – and it's a scary thing because we do that today as well. We think that if we just say God's name and if we sort of use it as a sort of a a, a power word that we're going to get you know our will done. But God can – God does what he wants, <laughs> when he wants it, mm-hmm. how he wants it. Mm-hmm. Right. He does. There's, yeah. of course, lots of verses that you know – about calling on his name and you know having the desires of our heart and stuff but but i think that we lose the whole meaning that he wants our will to align with his not his will aligning with ours it's it's the opposite he wants us to be in alignment with him and then we want what he wants and that's that's not always easy because we we're born i mean you know throughout our life we have desires and we have dreams and we have hopes and and now it's like you know somebody asked me last night actually they said so what's your what's your goal what's your you know resolution type thing for you know the new year and i'm like honestly as as you know maybe christian ease as it sounds it's really just to get my will in alignment with god's because because i can make yes. all sorts of plans but unless god is Unless they're God's plans, I'm going to fail. Exactly. That's right. That is well said. There's so many levels of scripture and there's so many levels of understanding. And and I think what you do through archaeology is you explore those deeper levels and you you find little treasures, no matter how insignificant they may seem. But they're treasures of bringing, like we said, bringing scripture to life, bringing these people were real and they experienced the king of the universe in very real ways. And, and I don't think it's any different. He wants to be the same God to us. Right. I mean, he wants, absolutely. He wants us to experience him. So 
I think it's just yes. awesome what you're yes. doing. And um, anything else you want to share and add some other cool no, things? Yeah, I, thank you. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I would say that one of the functions of archaeology has uh, – as I see it, it has about three functions uh, when it comes to students of scripture. Um, it can affirm the text, and, and I'm clear to make a distinction between affirming the historical reliability of the text and proving the Bible. Because when we talk about proof uh, from a philosophical standpoint, you're talking about like a logical proof, whereas archaeology is based on you know sort of a, a cumulative case, and it's sort of induction. So there's degrees of probability. Um, so archaeology is not going to give you 100% exact science, but it's going to give you levels of probability. So it can affirm the text. It can it can say, yes, this person existed, or no, this person did not exist, uh, or at least we don't have any evidence that he existed yet, uh, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. Um, but they can also clarify the text, and it can help illuminate the text, and this is where – it comes into understanding the cultural background of the biblical writers, such as Moses and, and the Old Testament, because um, archaeology is an ongoing science, and we are continually learning new things every day. Uh, but we learn, you know, what people ate, you know, how they lived, what mm-hmm. kind of houses they lived in, um, you know, everyday types of things. Um, and then, of course, there are many historical inscriptions that have uh, historical names on them, and we can read about those. And, uh, for example, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah and Chronicles and Kings, we read about the, a massive event that happened in Israel. Well, two big events, one, the invasion of the uh, Assyrians and then the Babylonians in 586 B.C., um, we, you know, the Bible talks about these two big events, these two major, majorly traumatic events in the Old Testament. And we have evidence of these events, not only in the record in, in Israel, but also in Iraq as well. We can go to the sites, these sites in Iraq, Nineveh, uh, and the site, the, some of these sites of, uh, you know, uh, Mesopotamia, Babylon. We've, we found discovered Babylon that was over a hundred years ago. And not only did we discover Babylon, we discovered the uh, major ceremonial gate that uh, that the, you know it went into the city, um, and very likely the Jewish captives like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego very likely walked through that very gate called the Ishtar Gate, dedicated to the Babylonian god mm-hmm. Ishtar, and that is now currently in the uh, Pergamum Museum in Berlin. Some of the uh, some of the actual bricks from the uh, walls that led into the gate are actually in museums around the world. There's some in the British Museum. There's some in the Istanbul Archaeological Museum in Turkey, and I've seen those. And there's some in here in Chicago at the Oriental Institute Museum. Um, and they're the lions, which is also one of the major gods of uh, some of the Babylonian gods, uh, Ishtar. Although by the time Daniel was in the lion's den, it was the you know the Medes that were in control, but it was the the lion of Babylon, and interestingly, sort of symbolic again to go back to this idea of polemical angle is that it was the major god of Babylon, and yet God shut the mouth of the lion; it did not consume Daniel. Um, so anyway, so archaeology always. My whole point was that archaeology, uh, it illuminates the text and it illuminates, it throws light on the uh, period of the biblical world. And that's one of the greatest things, I think, that we we can get from it. That's cool. And yeah, like you said, I mean, that is, I, I, I see so much spiritual warfare in scripture between 
not just people, but God and objects that they worship. Yes. And it's like, he's just throwing them down saying, nope, no power. They have no power. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I'm more powerful than they are. And I, I think that's just awesome that when you start seeing those things and you start understanding all the gods they had and, um, and maybe you can speak into this because I just learned something recently that Abraham came from, you know, basically that area as that's well. Right. And um, the whole Babylonian area. And um, they were used to, you know, giving their son or giving their firstborn or giving a child to be sacrificed. And so in God, from what I read and what I understand is God used that and said, you know, give me your son. And so and that's why we kind of see that Abraham just went like, okay, you know, maybe he didn't do it as easily as that. But that's this feel of scripture we get. but. But then it was almost like God's when he stopped him, he goes, no, I'm not that God that you're used to. I'm different. Mm -hmm. And I'm the one who's going to sacrifice my son for you. I'm the God who will sacrifice, not you won't sacrifice your son. And it's the opposite of everything he had learned in his. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One of the oldest cities in the world uh, in Ur. In southern Mesopotamia, you know, it was excavated back in the last century, actually two centuries, like in the 19th century, uh, early in the uh, late 19th century, early 20th century. In fact, there's been some really famous archaeologists to dig there. Uh, one of the most famous ones, of course, is Sir Leonard Woolley, and one of his colleagues was a British archaeologist by the name of Max Malawan, who had a very famous wife. They actually met in 1928 at the site of Ur, where Abraham was born. And his wife was uh, none other than mm. Agatha Christie. And Agatha Christie wrote one of her oh. first uh, mystery novels called Murder in Mesopotamia when she actually met her husband, Max Malawan, uh, at Ur. And then Max went on to dig at a site called um, uh, uh, not uh, Nineveh, but uh, I forget the name of it. Uh, Nippur, I think it was. I can't remember the site off the top of my head. Anyway, uh, yeah, the site is a very famous site. And um, – when you're looking at Abraham, the time frame of Abraham, uh, there's some big debate, even among evangelical archaeologists and historians, biblical scholars, as to the dating of Abraham. I hold to the sort of more conservative uh, date, I guess you'd call it, although some of my colleagues who disagree with it. But I, I take the I take the genealogies and the the lengths of the reigns of their of how long they lived to be literally true, and I think Abraham lived as long as he did, as according to the scripture. So, if that is the case, and when you look at the genealogies. Um, that would make Abraham born sometime around 2166 BC. Uh, so this is at the very beginning of the Ur three period. Abraham would have left before there was a king by the name of Ur Namu who uh, drove out. There was a uh, an invading sort of people group to the north in uh, what is now modern day Iran called the Gudians, G U T I A N S. And the Gudians were uh, not as civilized, I guess is a good way to put it, as the people who lived in central Mesopotamia. Uh, Abraham's died. They, they were a little bit more cultured. You know, they liked art and music and culture and things like that, more cultivated, I guess you'd be call them. But Abraham le- left for, for Haran in the north, about 600 miles northeast in Turkey, uh, right before Urnamu came on the scene and drove out the Gudians. In fact, some scholars believe that Abraham's father, Terah, 
uh, whose name may have connections with the Mesopotamian god Inanna, the moon goddess. Um, he may have been even a priest hmm. in uh, in there in Mesopotamia. We're not, it's not, not exactly sure, but it's it's very possible. But um, it may be the reason why uh, Abraham left uh, to go to Haran with his with his father. And right before uh, Ur-Nammu came on the scene, and and in Ur-Nammu, the best way to to understand him is if you don't understand the European history, you may remember uh, there was a very famous king that by the name of Charlemagne, who uh, instituted great reforms in mm-hmm. Europe and brought in learning and universities, things like that. So Ur-Nammu would sort of be the modern or the ancient equivalent of like a Charlemagne. He built ziggurats. In fact, one of the largest times in which the uh, people in Iraq built ziggurats was during the Ur-Namu period, or called the Ur-3 period. And um, when Ur fell by the Gudians, there was this lament of Ur, and uh, it's very famous. But but anyway, what we, what we read about, when you look at that time frame of the um, early Bronze Age, you see uh, that Abraham lived in a very cultured time. He very likely could speak multiple languages. In fact, uh, it's possible that he spoke um, a dialect of Akkadian, of course. If he went north, uh, there were uh, a group of people called the Amorites, and um, he would have went there, and they were semi-nomadic. In fact, they were increasing in number uh, in the northern part of Iraq and into southern um, uh, Anatolia. And Haran, again, is – pretty far north and it's from haran that abraham went to canaan and uh he could have learned he could have known multiple languages at the time mm-hmm. so um so again that the we don't have interestingly i wrote an article for epic archaeology about abraham and what i find interesting we know the name was in existence but it, to be perfectly frank and honest we don't have right now as we know it direct archaeological evidence for abraham but we do have indirect evidence and we can see his time frame we we find in some tablets that were discovered in newsy in syria as well in the ebla tablets uh we find customs and uh certain activities that illuminate abraham's time and uh some of the actions that he did in fact one, one i'll give you an example is um for instance, when uh, he was told at a very old age, you know, that you're going to have a son, and remember they laughed and was like, "Yeah, right, we're going to," you know, he's told his wife, and so Sarah actually mm-hmm. uh, gave Abraham his con- her concubine to have a child, and now we know, and we, we kind of stand aghast, like, "Why would she do that?" But at the time, according to these uh, these inscriptions. That was what – because male inheritance is called promogeniture. It was very, very important in the ancient Near East. In fact, we see this all throughout Egypt, all throughout Mesopotamia. If your wife, your first primary wife that you married, uh, she could not provide a male offspring, then it was part of the culture that you would uh, you know, get with a concubine or someone else to provide a male offspring so that your inheritance could then pass on to your son, your eldest son or your, you know, your son. So um, that is why very likely Sarah provided her um, Hagar to Abraham, and the Newsy tablets explain that as well. Um, and then, uh, of course, you have the famous episode of Abraham and Lot separating and uh, Lot, of course, going into right. Sodom and the cities on the plain and Abraham, of course, having to uh, rescue him or fight the kings of Sodom. So we find the cities – in fact, we find the archaeological evidence for the five cities in the Ebla tablets, so we know they existed. 
So, um, so what I, again, to go back to what I was saying earlier, the article that I wrote, uh, what I find ironic and sort of, I think it's by design actually from God and his providence that Abraham is the father of faith for all, not just Jews and Christians, but also for all people of monotheistic faith, Jews, Muslims, and Christians. I mean, well, they all trace their, their heritage back to Abraham. And what I find interesting is that, uh, in order to believe that he existed, you have to have faith. <laughs> so in other words, mm-hmm. archaeology doesn't do away, doesn't eradicate faith. You have to have faith. Um, but it mm-hmm. can provide good reasons. It's the object of our faith that's important. And we believe that, of course, Abraham existed as well as Jesus. And Jesus, of course, there's evidence that he existed as well. But yeah, right. so that's that's what I would add. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> It's good that our Messiah, you know, there is evidence. So it's always cool when, when you hear something, you know, I think, um, didn't, I don't know what year, but they found a boat in the Sea of Galilee. That's correct. That, yes. That yes. dated back to the time That's of right. Jesus. First century. That's right. And it was in the, uh, it was in the, uh, silt of the Sea of Galilee. And, Again, it's uh, you know nothing nothing surprising, but uh, it shows us that there was, of course, fishing that was being done, or people had boats on the Sea of Galilee. Was it the one that Jesus wrote in? Right. There's absolutely no way to know that for sure. No, no, uh, no but, DNA, <laughs> no DNA, exactly. But yeah, there are, there are there are quite a few artifacts though that uh, that really show us that the the New Testament is very reliable historically. I mean, I've been to Israel and I. I'm actually just been praying that the Lord would open doors for me to go back because I, it's such an interesting place. And, you know, sometimes I get, I was frustrated. It's like, why do they put a church everywhere? You know, but, but I had one guest on who actually said, if it weren't for those churches, that history and that archaeology wouldn't have been saved. It right. it wouldn't be there that's for right. us to see today. And I never thought of it that way. And that's that's pretty awesome that um, they do save it in that way. Now, I think that we can make those, you know, into idols, honestly. We can make certain things like that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more important that we see it as historical proof, you know, that here this lines up with our Bibles that we read and hold to the word of God and and um and to go then and see it with your own two eyes it's it's amazing to be on the sea of galilee and think you know jesus taught here and and i can sit here a couple thousand years later and imagine what that Absolutely. was like yeah when you uh when you go to israel you can actually uh you know have your bible in one hand and you can literally look up from the page of the scripture and see where it's talking about and it's still there today. Mm-hmm. It's not like, uh, you know, a lot of people love, and I love Lord of the Rings. It's a great book. It's a three volume set, you know, <laughs> but, but you can't go to the Lord of the Rings and go, Oh, here is, you know, Gondor. It doesn't exist. It's a completely make believe, but right. you can take the scripture and you can go to these sites and you can find, uh, exactly where it's talking about. And it, that's the first thing that struck me when I first went to Israel is that. Whoever wrote this scripture, they knew what they're talking about. They they were here. They were eyewitnesses of these things. And so, right. uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Geography itself is, I think, an, a, another evidence of the reliability of scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when you can 
Right. I mean, you can see all these things. You can see the remains of the temple. You can see the steps they would have ascended to go into the temple. And you can imagine. And and again, the tour guide actually said, you know, these are the songs they would have sang as they ascended the steps into the temple. And and they're right here in our Bibles. We call them the That's Psalms, right. you know, and and it's 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 fun and it's amazing at the same time to put it all it together. Is. It is. And, and see it just happen. And, and even, oh, I mean, you know, there were just so many times that you were in an area and you knew like that Jesus taught on this hillside or Jesus was in the, um, Caiaphas, his, yes. his house or I guess the, where the, um, dungeon kind of thing was and, and look down and, and know that, you know, he was in there. That's right. Before his death. Right. And, Wow, it's it's just it touches your heart and it just brings it all to life. So, but I appreciate all this. I appreciate <laughs> all your knowledge and on just sharing it with us. And I think it's just so cool and so interesting. And I'm actually going to sign up for your class in great, great. Because, thank you. Yeah, I want to hear more. And um, it's and actually, I might try to get my son. My son is just a lover. He actually speaks Arabic and he his in college he concentrated on the Middle East and so he's fascinated by um all of that stuff and especially archaeology stuff. He's Love just it. it's awesome. And, and and we're just we're finding new stuff every every day and it's just exciting and one of one of the my other team that I'm with uh ABR they're excavating mm. at Shiloh so you guys could join the Shiloh dig this summer. Wow. Um in Israel they're uh, I think in their fifth or sixth year of excavation and um I think uh, I can give you the link to it but uh Henry Smith would be the contact person for for Associates of Biblical Research. Dr. Scott Stripling is the director. He's a a good friend and colleague and Great archaeologist, and they just uh, uh, had this announcement uh, this year, actually, where they discovered a, a new inscription on Mount Ebal called the Mount Ebal Lead Cursed Tablet Inscription that is currently uh, – well, it's going to be peer-reviewed. It's, it's uh, right now about to be peer-reviewed and published. Uh, they had two uh, paleographers uh, on board with it. Um, but it's the oldest Hebrew name of Yahweh in Israel ever discovered. Wow. And it was found on Mount Ebal near Shechem. You know, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim is where they re Joshua renewed the covenant with Israel after the defeat of Ai, and they have actually they found in I think in twenty nineteen uh, twenty twenty they found a uh, lead curse tablet inscription on the Joshua altar site. So wow. that's a that's a whole other thing. But wow. uh, Scott is now the dig director at Shiloh, and uh, yeah, and that's the site, of course, where the tabernacle stood in Israel for nearly four hundred years until J- David. Mm-hmm captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites and made it Jerusalem the capital. But there's evidence, of course, of that being the uh, temple area because there were storerooms. That's where the Israelites would bring all their offerings, and uh, they found a clay pomegranate a couple of years ago indicating priestly activities. Um, it's just an amazing site, and you wow. can dig there. And and you don't have to have experience either. If you don't know anything about archaeology, we will train you in how to – Wash pottery. If you can wash dishes, you can you can dig a site. <laughs> pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I had a friend do yeah. that too. So she just raves about it. She goes, "We got to go places that they don't take tourists," and um, she, yeah. she thought it was the coolest thing ever. So it's definitely um, interesting. And so, and I'm going to leave these um, links to different things that he mentioned and some of the YouTube and and his site. I'm going to leave on my um, website. 
which is um, you can find at www.graphicjewishroots. So then you can go and go to his site and go to some of these um, different things he mentioned. So, but I think I have one minor correction. Oh. At the beginning, I think you mentioned it was epicarchaeology.com. It's actually epicarchaeology.org. .org. Okay, I will make sure I get that <laughs> correct. Thank you. No problem. No problem. All right. Well, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me on. It was an honor to be with you today. Thank you. God bless. Thank you for listening to Grafted Jewish Roots of Christianity. You can find me at www.graftedjewishroots.com. You can also find me on Twitter at graftedjewishrt. I appreciate you being with me, and I'll see you next time.